You're listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Hi and welcome to By the Well. My name is Sean Winter. And I'm Robin Whittaker. And today we're looking at some readings relating to the 23rd Sunday after Pentecost. We're going to be looking at Isaiah 65 verses 17 to 25. We're then going to move to look directly at the gospel text, Luke 21, 5 to 19. And if we've got a bit of time, we'll take a diversion across to look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 to 13. Robin, Isaiah chapter 65 is pretty near the end of the book of Isaiah. We're coming to the end of the year. So, um, so tell us a bit about what's going on in this uh, text and the visions that we get in these, um, these latter chapters of Isaiah and chapter 65. Yeah, thanks, Sean. I mean, the first thing to say is at the end of the epoch of the end of the lectionary year, we, we, you may have noticed if you've read the readings where we get into this apocalyptic literature, and here at the end of Isaiah, a lot of these last couple of chapters of Isaiah, uh, scholars refer to as sort of leaning in that apocalyptic direction. We're moving from sort of classical prophecy, yeah. uh, where um, God's action is seen primarily in the sort of historic. Uh, Yep. you know, reconstruction of things, uh, to something that starts to be a little bit more eschatological, a little bit more apocalyptic in flavour. And we can see that here with this language of sort of new heaven and new earth. Mm. But with the caveat that we're still in a scenario here of exiles returning, some scholars think this is uh, a passage addressing a tension in the Jerusalem community about rebuilding after devastation and attention between those who stayed and perhaps the elites returning and what it means to rebuild. So in terms of date, we've got this idea that, um, you know, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are kind of 8th century material. Mm -hmm. Then we've got chapters 40 to 55, often called second or deutero Isaiah. So that from the period um, of the exile itself, anticipating a return. And these remaining chapters um, from chapters 55 through to 66, uh, often called Third Isaiah or Trito yeah. Isaiah. So it belongs to this period when the people are have kind of come back and there's conflict emerging out of this process of renewal and reconstruction of the nation. That seems to be the context for uh, for what's going on yes. here. Yes. And we should say Christians have read this in a couple of ways with that more historical setting in mind, that this is addressing a particular community's needs, as we've just framed. Um, but, of course, people have interpreted it um, as you know, this reference to new heavens and new earths as something that's about the ultimate end. Yeah. And we might want to say to preachers somehow that balance or that tension needs to be kept. Yeah, good. The way, the way I was taught the um, the difference between prophecy and apocalyptic was um, my Old Testament teacher many, many years ago said that uh, his wife was a prophetic cook in the kitchen. In other words, she made a bit of a mess but then she kind of mopped up the mess before going on to the next stage of the recipe, kind of cleared mm. everything up and then went on and as did the went. next bit as she went, whereas he was an apocalyptic cook. So he just destroyed everything and made a complete mess. And then when everything was kind of over and done with, he went through and kind of cleaned the whole thing up at the end. Um, and I, I think that you're absolutely right. We're kind of on the tipping point here in Trito Isaiah to this idea that God isn't just going to fix things for a bit and then let them go wrong again and then fix them again there's some expectation that god is going to do something decisive and ultimate and kind of cosmic in scope and that's what generates this sense of apocalyptic expectation that we find them worked out in other texts 
partly in the Hebrew Bible, but also partly in other Second Temple Jewish um, literature. Yeah, you're absolutely right, though. That the the difference that, that what what's really important is this vision of the end is not in some zero sum game with the idea of its relevance for understanding circumstances, mm. history, human relationships, and all of those other things. And what's really interesting for me is that one of the ways that's marked in the text is this is a text that has very explicit connections back into earlier sections of Isaiah. Yep. Um, so, for example, in verse 23, I think it is, um, we have the idea that they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord. They shall see their offspring. Mm. And this picks up something said about the servant in Isaiah 53. He shall see his offspring survive. In verse 25, the wolf and the lamb feeding mm. together. And um, that comes direct out of Isaiah chapter 11. Yes, with that vision, again, Absolutely. that very utopian vision of the animals that Absolutely. are yeah, so, and prey. So we're kind of looking towards the horizon and we're also just looking around the corner at, yes. at, at the same time. Yeah. yeah, and also in this sort of symbolic language. So, and you can see that in the text. I mean, if we, if we pick up some of these images, the first thing I want to press on is this this creation of new heavens and new earth. I mean, theologically, this is a constant biblical affirmation that it's not that God just created once, but the, the creative work of God is an ongoing activity. And that can be uncomfortable for a lot of people in the pews that God is always doing something new, yeah. right? Yeah. Christians aren't always great at doing new things. God is always doing new things or calling us to new things. But it's also cosmic in scope, that word you use. Like, you know, I think our default mode so often is to think of heaven as something out there and earth as the thing that will be done away with. Mm. This is saying the entirety of heaven and earth, um, the whole thing is somehow transformed and recreated, uh, collapsed, whatever. It's it's not a rapture. It's not a beaming up to some spiritual heaven. This is a recreation of the entire cosmos that takes us back to Genesis 1 and forward to what would be the book of Revelation that will pick up this imagery again. Yeah. Um, and yet that sits alongside this creation of Jerusalem, a really specific place where there's joy and the people regather. So it gives a very grounded... Um, image i think that people could relate to of what it's like to live in a joyful city again it's, a, it's, it's a really interesting way of thinking mm. theologically and and um, preachers might think about the way in which they convey this idea um if they talk about this text um so one thing is to notice that when uh, earlier on in isaiah in uh, isaiah 42 for example where it talks about you know god doing a new thing the new yep. thing about to happen when the new thing arrives, it looks very much like the old thing. <laughs> it, <laughs> yes. gets, it gets described in the language of, well, you know, you wandered through the wilderness before and you passed through and I looked after you. Then you're going to do it again. There's going to be a new or a second exodus. Yeah. So the relationship between innovation on the one hand, the new thing, and history and tradition and where you've come from, those two things are intimately related to each other. The other thing to point out, of course, is that language of new creation does crop up later on in the New Testament, particularly in Paul and mm. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as a way of thinking about the significance of Jesus and particularly Christ's death and resurrection, which becomes for Paul, I think, you know, the decisive event in which this new alternative possibility, not in complete discontinuity with what's gone before, but that reframes your relationship mm. with what's gone before, and that's what the gospel does. It provides you with a new frame for thinking through um, where we have come from, where we're going. Exactly. And that continuity, I mean, it's interesting the lectionary puts this alongside 
Luke 21, which we'll move to in yeah. a second, where you know Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. This is the temple imagined being rebuilt back here in Isaiah, and this is part of this new creation. So, um, you know, continuity disruption constantly going on, uh, but an emphasis on, I mean, great words of comfort here too. Yeah, you know, there's no more weeping. Children will be born. You'll see your children raised. You'll live in the house you built. Um, right. It won't be taken away from you. You won't be displaced. People, the toil, the work of your fields. You won't see them overrun by soldiers. You'll get to eat your crops that you planted. You know, the, the sense of comfort and peace in the aftermath of war. Hmm. We cannot, you know, underestimate. A- absolutely, it's about the restoration of some form of ordered, yeah, um, and flourishing society. I, as I was reading it before, I was thinking to myself, you know, what what would happen if you took the four main things that are said here and put them in some kind of political party manifesto? It seems to me they would match on you mm-hmm. know, in, infant mortality rates, aged care, viable housing. And you know, productive food. work yeah, and food, food provision. Yeah. Like it, th- those things are basically the undergirding principles of what an ordered and flourishing society and a good life. Yeah, looks like. yeah, that's right. Exactly. Well, should we move on to Luke twenty-one five to nineteen? Let's do that. So Jesus is in the uh, temple precinct here in Jerusalem towards the end of Luke, and. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if we want to say too much more about the setting. He's been in conversation in these previous chapters with lots of groups. There's been some conflict at times. Here I was struck reading this again. He, he gets this sort of amusing about the beauty of the temple, which apparently Herod's temple was stunning. Pretty spectacular. I think yeah. um, the sources tell us that when you kind of made your pilgrimage towards it, you didn't just see the, the building, you could see some of the kind of bling that was associated mm. with the building so the doors for example i think had bronze or, or, or gold kind of panels on them shone. and shone in the yeah. sunlight and were glinting as you kind of came over the mount of olives so this notion that um the, the, the temple wasn't some very sparse or spare mm. um temple when we look at ancient temples now what we only we only see stonework Yes, we don't see the bling. We don't That's see gone. the bling. The yep. bling is all gone. We the don't mar- see the, the colour. The marble, yep. the colour, the painting, the the precious metals, all of that stuff um, has disappeared. So, yeah, so people are in absolute awe at all of this and uh, saying how beautiful the stones are. And Jesus says, well, okay, right. I'll tell you what's going to happen to those stones. <laughs> exactly. And the thing that struck me is his authority here is really upheld because when he says they're all going to be thrown down... I mean, he could, he could have been kicked out of the temple at that point or all sorts of reactions. But the the question that comes back in verse 7 is, teacher, when will this happen? Not how do you know this, are you out of your mind, but when will this happen? Maybe a literary, you know, uh, construction. Yeah. And we should talk perhaps about, again, there's a couple of levels we can read this text. I, I think um, absolutely. I mean, Luke very clearly has, so this is the last time that Jesus teaches in public in the Gospel of Luke. Yeah. And the Gospel of Luke, of course, has made a big structural claim about the importance of Jesus making his journey towards Jerusalem. That's taken up structurally the whole central Mm. um, narrative. So his arrival in Jerusalem comes with the sense of a prophet arriving to bring um, God's news. And and the, the message that Jesus brings is fundamentally one of judgment. Mm. Now, quite what the judgment is for or what constitutes um, why God um, 
want to judge Jerusalem and the temple is a question for debate that we can't go into here. But the temple is at the heart of it. Mm. So uh, it relates to this claim that Jesus makes right the way through this central passage that he is the one who teaches authoritatively, that he is the prophet sent by God, um, and that the prophet's message belongs rightly at the heart of social, institutional, cultural, religious power. And, yep. that, and that's the temple. The temple for Jews, yes. Um, and the other thing is, again, we can we can read this at a level of, you know, within the narrative, it's what Jesus is doing right before his death. You know, all those things you just said, Sean. Yep. Um, but it also helps to remember, I think, that Luke wrote this down decades later. Yep. Most scholars would put Luke at least in the 80s, if not the 90s, sometimes even later, as a gospel. So we've got, you know, that we know in that later period of Christianity, Christians were starting to ask, well, when is Jesus returning? Mm-hmm. You know, is this the eschaton? Is, is this the end? Like, you know, after the resurrection, or is there more to come? Is Jesus coming back in some way? Um, we see those anxieties both in the Luke passage and in the Second Thessalonians passage today about what that looks like. And um, so, and of course, being written in that later period, the temple has been destroyed. That's right. Since so we Jesus' think, life. You absolutely. Know. So we think that Luke is very clearly writing, knowing full well what happened to the Jerusalem temple yeah. at the end of the first Jewish war in 70 CE. And when he describes it a bit later on in chapter 21, he does so mm. pretty much knowing exactly how the Romans lay siege to it and how they brought it, um, how they defeated it. Yeah. So Luke is writing after that period. And so we get this interesting um, connection again between, on the one hand, a reference to, you know, events in the recent past, (laughs) Mm. um, whether it be the destruction of the temple or the experience of the persecution of the early Christian movement, which Luke, of course, is a story Luke tells himself in the Acts of the Apostles. Yes. That on the one hand, but then this still future horizon of the coming of the Son of Man um, the ultimate uh, God, God's ultimate arrival to bring God's rule and God's reign in what we now call the second coming. Yes, and um, you can so you can see that in verse nine, where you know Jesus has been talking about false teachers will come. We get this. This is a classic apocalyptic theme. There'll yeah. be false teachers. Um, there's a bit of a word play here we miss in the English translation. Um, you know, don't don't follow after them, which is discipleship language. Yep. It's what he uses when he calls the disciples, follow after me. So don't follow after them, they're false teachers. But then he talks about wars and insurrections and all these things that will happen, but we get this line at the end of verse 9, but the end will not follow immediately. So there is delay. There's going to be this period of waiting. Just because you've seen destruction or seeing a war does not mean Jesus is coming back any second. Yeah, in fact, there's, actually, there's not actually a verb in that final phrase. Mm. It literally in Greek just says, um, but not immediately, pause the end. The end. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so you get, and, and this has created for many people, of course, this sense that when Luke writes, he kind of knows now that the Jesus movement is in for something of the long haul. Mm. Um uh, this theme of what sometimes is called the delay of the parousia. And and that's been um, stated in a kind of crass way, which suggests that, you know, Luke doesn't have any, isn't really concerned about the future anymore or doesn't really worry about the second coming. It's not so much that. It is that Luke understands that there is now a tension between the question of um, how and when uh, will God show up, will Jesus return on the one hand, and how and when and what does it look like to live 
and to use his word to be patient or to endure, endure yeah. <laughs> in the middle of a circumstance while we still await that future event. Yeah, and you can see, I mean, some of the things listed here, you know, you'll be arrested, persecuted, some of you handed over, um, some of you, you know, put on trial effectively for your faith. I mean, that probably reflects something of a historic reality of what's happening, you know. So we need to read these texts remembering Christians at this time, tiny minority, a new religious cult effectively, so viewed with probably quite a lot of suspicion from people around them. And a religious movement that, you know, had broken down or at least was attempting to break down some classic barriers. You know, you've got slave eating with free, men eating with women, Jews eating with Gentiles. This is very disruptive of the social order. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's really difficult for us to reconstruct historically quite how all that played out. What's absolutely true is that Luke's story of it in the Acts of the Apostles is exactly that, yep. of this new religious movement coming into a, a basically a conflictual relationship with the surrounding culture and sources of religious and political authority. Um, so uh, pretty much everything here, you know, synagogues, prisons, kings, governors, I mean, you know, yep. read the story of what happens to Paul in the Acts of the Apostles and all of that. Out, yeah, this right? is almost like a little a little summary of <laughs> what we're right. going to get right. uh, spelt out in. But Acts. what's really what strikes me is verse thirteen. Okay. So Luke yes. understands this not as um, a, a, a kind of it, it does. I don't think it should generate a kind of persecution or martyr complex, no. although that's a trajectory that does emerge out of these kinds of texts. But Luke says what it does provide is it provides an opportunity for witness for testifying, um, and I think that's part of Luke's answer to what you do when you're living in between, you know, what's yes. around you and what's around the corner and then what's on the horizon in terms of your hope in God, what you do is you try and bear witness to it somehow. And sometimes you have to do that in quite demanding um, or um, problematic circumstances. Yeah, I, I think that's dead right. If if I was going to preach on this, I would want to press on that. I mean, that, this is the timeless wisdom, right? We're in a very different place to this community in the first century. But, you know, that sense of wherever you are and whatever the surrounding culture, you know, thinks of you or not, the role of Christians is to testify to their hope, to testify what Jesus has done. And he also talks about, um, you know, not relying on not pre-planning but depending on Jesus' wisdom. So mm-hmm. there's some thing there about, that, you know, that relational trust in Jesus. And then this language at the end of endurance, staying faithful, uh, which is actually kind of athletic language. We get other images in the New Testament running the race and all this kind of stuff. Um, but this sense of, um, you know, holding fast, standing firm, being faithful, you know, with all the big picture kind of wars and tensions and powers going on, these are very simple postures that Christians are asked to adopt. I mean, simple, I say not simple to do necessarily, yeah. but not. it's not bring down the kingdom, it's not take on the powers that be, it's witness, endure, trust in Jesus' wisdom. They're, they're pretty significant um, because uh, taking them seriously, I, I think, helps to just clarify what the whole purpose of Christian faith and life and the life mm-hmm. of the church is actually for. Yep. Um, a, a good friend of mine, a ch- church historian by the name of Alan Crider, a Mennonite um, historian, mm-hmm. wrote before he died a book called The Patient Ferment of the, of the Early Church. And his argument was, you know, what, what secured... A future for the church was its capacity to actually be patient 
um, and yeah. to uh, bear witness and endure in the midst of really difficult and challenging circumstances in a way that just consistently but uh, slowly and without violence bore witness to the nature of the church's hope. Now, there's a kind of overly romantic Mm. Uh, mm. A- account of all of that which is that everything was rosy and the, t- the church was always wonderful that's absolutely not the case no. but there is a thread of this notion of patient witness that I think runs through the early centuries of the church's experience um, and it's framed I think by that sense of being uh, located in between the difficulty of our present circumstances and the future horizon of God's promise of ultimate salvation yeah and that that tense place we live i do want to say if you're going to preach on a text like this and most people would read the gospel in their services it might be good to also frame it in terms of some of the rhetoric we see going on in society today at least here in australia and certainly in the u.s and i don't know other parts of the world as well there are certain christian groups claiming that they're now being persecuted um you know, religious freedoms under threat. We can't express our beliefs in public, and so witnessing what what I think they would call witnessing has taken on this incredibly kind of um, confrontational uh, them and us kind of. And I I don't think that's what I mean. For starters, I don't think Christians in Australia are persecuted. No, that's right. Um, but it's that tradition you pointed to uh, before, Sean, where you know historians have looked at the way this persecution language gets picked up by those who actually now have the power. So we've got a very different power dynamic. Um, so be wary, I guess, and maybe name the wariness of those with power claiming to be persecuted and that witnessing, as you said, in that Mennonite tradition, reminds us of it very much, is about doing so non-violently, mm-hmm. that there's, there's something about the Christian posture of witness that is not about deliberately picking fights and getting into conflict and, you know, I mean, conflict might be inevitable, Sometimes, but, you know, there's a tension there. Again, there's some careful stuff to map out. So it's absolutely easy to understand how the image of being hauled before, Mm. you know, authorities to give witness, how that can feed a narrative about, you know, a Christian vocation to fight culture wars. Yes. But it seems to me that um, what what we need to bear in mind constantly is that this is a narrative that's leading towards the events of the Passion. The, the stories mm. of Jesus' crucifixion is the next event that Luke basically starts to tell. Yes, yes. Um, which is then locates this question of, okay, when Jesus is hauled up before Pilate or before Caiaphas, um, what's the nature of the witness that he bears at that point in the drama? Well, it's not a confrontational, this is why you're wrong. Mm-mm. It's a pointing towards the hope that the Son of Man is coming on the clouds of heaven in great glory. Yeah. So. Absolutely. The, the the task of bearing witness is not primarily oriented at showing, you know, your opponent your, or your adversary, you know, what they've done wrong, but primarily about giving an account of the hope that you and others yes. uh, hold to. Yep. Well, should we turn to Second Thessalonians? Yes, let's do that. Did you know you could join our Facebook group by the well for extra content and discussion? So the lectionary gives us uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 to 13, which is right at the end. This is a short little text, so we're in the final chapter here. Um, we mentioned this, I think, in earlier episodes, probably not Paul. A, a later Christian text would be the general consensus, but written in this Pauline style. Yeah. 
Um, and again, as a whole, not so much in this particular passage, but reflecting a, this same concern about when is Jesus coming back, this what we call the delay of parousia. Yeah, and um, one of the themes that struck in 1 Thessalonians, which we think is authentic, yep. is that Paul does talk about the idea that there are some people who for some reason aren't working as hard as they should. Mm. And he offers himself in 1 Thessalonians 5 as an example of, well, you know, um, as an apostle, um, I've worked hard among you and therefore you should take on the responsibility of working. So if 2 Thessalonians is a kind of partly a a homage to 1 Thessalonians, Mm. this theme of people who don't work (laughs) comes back and is explored in uh, much more detail in this chapter. I mean, it's a quite remarkable section really because it deals with such a a kind of very obvious and concrete mm, uh, feature of community life what do you do when some people aren't pulling their weight and bear in mind that everything that we know about early christian assemblies suggests that the vast majority of people here lived you know above on or just below the level of subsistence so this Mm. isn't written to a community with significant resources with significant money with significant access to food and housing and clothing and all those Mm. other things Um, it's written to uh, people who are used to living with what we would call precarity yes and on that basis the idea that some people might decide and paul gives the impression that they choose not to might decide not to work i'm not going to go out is something that Mm. is destructive of the community in some sense and therefore needs to be addressed. Yeah, and scholars tend to fall into sort of two camps in terms of um, what they think might be going on historically here. It's hard to know for sure. One is that it is about eschatology, that there are some in this community who think, well, Jesus is coming back any day, so why why keep working? Why invest, you know, like the end is near, we can give up all these everyday things. I mean, interesting to put that in contrast with the vision in Isaiah 65, which is actually all about the flourishing that comes through the everyday that's right. business the, the, of work the, the and food. That's right, the productivity of work, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so that's a whole interesting little tension in our text today. But the other theory is that, um, you know, Christians, again, maybe a, in some Christian texts a slightly overstated sense of their generosity, but this sense of looking out for for one another, and that perhaps some people were taking advantage of that, of the hospitality and the generosity. Yeah, we- so the, 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 the social dynamics behind this are pretty difficult to reconstruct. Yep. But broadly speaking, we know that in the ancient world, many people relied for uh, food and for access mm-hmm. to basic resources on um, others from whom they received generosity. So yes. um, we, we name it the kind of relationship between patrons and clients. And patrons very often had resources and clients were obliged to seek um, financial generosity and support from their, their patrons. Yep. So if there's some of that going on in the background here in the life of the community, then maybe it's a, um, it's a kind of social relationship problem that Paul is addressing as much as it is as a theological one. Although I don't think those two are mutually exclusive, of course. The, no. The, the, the idea that, well, I don't have to work because Jesus is coming back tomorrow could well easily fit in with the perception from some who have been generous in this community yep. that there are others who aren't putting their weight. Exactly. And, I mean, even the language here used without being too Greek nerdy, this word translated idleness, idol, the ataktos, it's an unusual word in the New Testament, and it, 
it also gets used in military contexts for being disorderly or unprepared. So there's something, it's not just laziness, there's something that, that is disorderly to the community life and this idleness, the not pulling weight. And then we get this play on um, those who work and those who do this busybody work. Um, the, the Greek words are a play on each other. The meddlers. So they're not actually doing any work that contributes, but they're meddling in other people's work in some way. Um, and again, that speaks to just a disruptiveness. It made me think of the um, Didache, which is a similar era, first century text that talks about Christian life. And in the ch- chapter 11 of the Didache, there are, again, some really explicit, quite amusing in some ways, um, teaching it's about if, a, if an apostle visits you, let them stay one to two days, but if they stay three, they're false. Yep. You know, if a, if a fellow Christian visits you needing hospitalities, let them stay two to three days. If they stay longer or they, or they ask for money, kick them out, basically they're not pulling their weight. So we can see this as a concern in early Christian communities about the limits of hospitality. The standard standard Greek uh, lexicon dictionary um, for this period and for the New Testament uses the phrases freeloader and sponger. (laughs) (laughs) And I I think that's what um, this is is, is imagined, the idea that People can take the mick, right? And yeah. and if they do that, then you need to be alert to it. And the wisdom comes in recognizing that actually, um, for this community to work in an ordered way, everyone needs to be contributing according to their yes. means. And even the leaders, you know, if leaders are asking you for money, this is. And again, with just a word of caution, perhaps that um, this is not to say we do not generously help those who are unable to work right this, this is not a text about that says that you you don't therefore need to care for the vulnerable and all of yeah. that this is about people capable of working who are choosing not to yeah, yeah. so the idle are not people who aren't working they're yeah. people who can not, work but choose not yeah, to they're not the sick they're not the elderly that's right yeah exactly uh sean just to wrap up any what would you preach on this week or any sort of key themes emerge for you oh look i think that the uh the isaiah passage is such a kind of rich and evocative and poetic passage that um i I would always go for trying to convey some of the kind of um the, the the delicious combination between uh imagined utopia and very real life um practices of work and family and growing mm. old and trying to c- take care of your kids it seems to me that the preacher should always be working with a congregation to help them to understand and work with the reality and the issues that are around them while all the time having one eye on the horizon of god's promise yeah and what the new thing god is doing even with where there's continuity in that mix absolutely by the well is brought to you by pilgrim theological college and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.